Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and joining me in studio today, as always, is President Wyatt. Hi, Scott. Thank you, Steve. It's nice to to be be here here with you. Always a pleasure. Today, we are finishing up a discussion of the first of our books in our summer book club, the book A Deadly Wandering by Matt Richtel. And we have two people joining us by teleconference who played enormously important roles in that story. And I'm going to ask you if you'll introduce them. Okay. Let's start with you, Dr. Strayer. So, um, Dr. Strayer, uh, welcome to our show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It is it is fun to be able to talk to you after having read this book a couple times and thinking about it. It's just really an honor to be able to visit with you and and have you help us think through the implications of this story. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, yeah. You are a um, psychology faculty member at the University of Utah? That's correct. I've been at the University of Utah since 1991. PhD from Illinois? Yep, from the uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And we'll get back into this just a little bit so that... Um, Everybody gets a sense of uh, your background and your research area uh, as we move through this. Our other guest today is Terrell Warner. Terrell, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. And the book is interesting because just about every other chapter is titled Terrell. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Terrell, you are the Director of Victim Services in the Cache County Attorney's Office in Logan, Utah. And a very prominent um, character in this story. It, it's been an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's begin at the beginning. So hopefully most of our listeners have read the book. But there'll be a lot of people that will listen to this um, without having read it, and then this will motivate them to read it. Um, but let's start out. Can you give us a brief... Um, summary of the story as it starts out and what gets us into this deadly wandering. So this book is is about a young man who was driving to work one morning, early one morning, and um, crossed the center divider and hit two rocket scientists, uh, Jim Fafaro and Keith O'Dell. It caused them to go into a spin and, and they were instantly killed when they were hit by a third vehicle. And the story is basically our investigation of through the, the criminal case in filing criminal charges and moving forward in helping Reggie to um, pay a debt to society as well as as help him with um, coming to terms with what he had done and bringing to light that that texting and driving is, is extremely dangerous. Texi, uh, Reggie is, is just an everyday average kid going to school. He was uh, working. He was just a young kid. And he could have been your son, my son, anybody's brother. It's just the everyday average kid that made a 
terrible, deadly decision one day. And this this case brings to light that deadly decision. Well, and as we pick up on in the book, uh, his challenges with confronting this and then moving forward. But we learn more about him from you, Terrell, and uh, Dr. Strayer. Um, he is an average, everyday kid, but what we learn is that he is a great average, everyday kid. He is. He's a kid that's got terrific character, and um, and that's part of our story is um, some of these pieces that maybe go beyond the book. Well, I mean, I'll say with I'll say with respect to Reggie um, that uh, my first meeting with him, of course, was uh, in the trial that uh, dealt with the, the the crash. But thereafter, one of the things he did was he went out and told all kinds of groups. Uh, he was on Oprah. He was on every medium he could to tell people just how dangerous this was. And instead of basically withdrawing into a shell, he tried to give back and tried to basically go beyond the call of duty and say. I don't want what happened to me and to uh, the victims in this crash to happen to anybody else. And here's the cautionary tale, because watch out, it could happen to any of us you're not careful. Right. I pay more attention to this because I've read this book a couple times. But as I'm driving down the road, the number of people that I see in the lane next to me uh, on their phones doing a quick text and or something, it, it's really quite shocking how many people. It's really scary. Yeah, those numbers have just exploded. Unfortunately, we see a, a huge increase in the number of people who have phones and then bring them into the car. And perhaps not surprisingly, we're seeing significant increases in the number of fatalities on the, on the roadways in the United States. And that reverses the trend of over 50 years of dec declining crashes. And the most uh, likely culprit is the fact that we're becoming more and more of a distracted driving society. So the – oh, go ahead, Terrell. No, that's, that's a really scary thought. We have spent an enormous amount of money and time and universities and, and researchers and companies have spent enormous amounts of money to make cars safer. We have PSAs. We have been working on reducing traffic fatalities and cars should be safer today than they were 50 years ago. We, we have airbags. We have seat belts that are better. We have better technology. But when we bring a phone into the, the car, some of those systems, um, no matter how many airbags you have, if you hit somebody head on, we're going to have a problem. Yeah, so there's the part of this story is um, Reggie's response. And I think maybe that's a great place for us to launch from because it helps us recognize how important this topic is. And... Yeah. Um, and, I, and when we were discussing this before, um, we were talking about what Reggie sees when he looks in the mirror today. Right. Why don't you talk to us about that? Okay, so we, one of the things that we talked about, and I, I don't remember, Dr. Strayer, where we were, but he I think it was on Oprah. He explained that every day he looks in the mirror, he gets up, he looks in the mirror, and he sees the person that killed two fathers, two husbands. That's got to be a difficult, horrific way to live your life, that every day that's your first memory. I, I killed two people. 
And and that's basically, I think he testified to that at the legislature as well, that, that this was a kid that was a good kid. He, he did really well in high school. He was athletic. And he made this terrible decision. And that's how he starts his day. And we're we're years after the accident, and he still feels that way. So it, well, one of the other things he did <clears throat> was there was initially legislation to try and um, restrict uh, texting uh, on in truck drivers uh, on the Utah highways, and it was kind of being stalled out in the some of the committees that in the legislature here in, in Utah. Uh, he asked to come up and talk, and they were going to give him just a few seconds to just kind of say his spiel. Um, and he was really eloquent, eloquent about this is the worst thing you want to do. You don't want to have someone who's got a, a semi driving down the road texting because you're just going to kill all kinds of people. And he probably, more than anything else, was uh, um, responsible for getting the uh, Utah legislature to see the real problem it was and to kind of make that bill actually advance out of committee. And that's really an uh, amazing thing he was able to do, and it was just the eloquence of his is his testimony. Right. At that time, when we went up to the legislature that day, that was the third time the bill had been heard, I believe, in the committee. And it just hadn't been passed out of the committee. And we had families there. We had we had parents that had testified that had lost a child to texting and driving. And I remember I had this very eloquent, I was told by Representative Clark, you have three minutes. And I'm like, great, I will use two minutes and 59 seconds. And I had this great, eloquent speech prepared. And, and you know me, Scott, I was really prepared for this. And I look around, the room is packed. And legislators are texting. They're talking to their interns. Nobody's <laughs> even listening to me. And I remember just going, oh, my gosh. And my husband kind of was there to support me. And he just said, I, I don't know if anybody's even listening to you, Terrell. And then he got up. Reggie got up. And he said, "Ms. Warner talked about a case. And with that, he started to cry. And he said, "You could, I could be your son. I could be your son. And you could have heard a pin drop in that room. And he didn't take three minutes. He took a lot longer. And you're right, Dr. Strayer. It, it's, I know that the legislators referred to that as Reggie's Law because had it not been for him, I don't believe we would have been successful that year again. So make sure that we're uh, tracking with this well. What is the law and uh, what, is, what is the law that was passed then and what's the current law in Utah? The current law in Utah is basically it's run like a DUI. If you kill somebody and you're texting and driving, you're looking at a second-degree felony now. It's run just like a DUI. It's actually the toughest, the toughest law in the country is what it was touted as because we said we have had enough information. It's kind of like DUIs. Anybody that knows anything about driving knows that DUIs are dangerous and you have a chance of killing somebody. We all know now, we've been on put on notice, that if you're texting and driving and you hit and kill somebody, you've had enough notice that it's dangerous that we're going to charge you with a second-degree felony. If I am driving down the road and I text, and because of that, I go over the line and hit another car and someone dies, that's a second-degree felony, one to 15 right. years in prison. One thing that's useful about the Utah law is it doesn't just single out texting. It says anything where you pick up the phone uh, and uh, are looking at the phone, holding the phone, uh, is, uh, is, is against the law. It's a felony. And uh, just as an example, the most recent uh, Uber driver who uh, ran over a pedestrian in Arizona, 
Well, he was holding the phone and he was streaming video to his phone while he was, uh, well, he was in that autonomous uh, Uber vehicle. Um, so this is, this is a, it, it's happening on a daily basis. Uh, we're just uh, seeing uh, that there's all kinds of ways which people can be distracted by their phone uh, where they're holding that phone. And so Utah law is good and says you can't stream videos, interact with Facebook, send text messages, or, or any of the things you could do by holding the phone. So now we've kind of set the story um, with Reggie and um, this accident and texting. Dr. Strayer, let's, let's back up a little bit and pick up on your research uh, on attention and how you got into this business. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, at the University of Utah, I'm a, a professor in psychology and I study, I'm cognitive neuroscientist, so understanding the brain and in particular how the brain uh, works and how we uh, divide attention or try and multitask and things like that. That research really comes out of uh, uh, aviation. Uh, and uh, in the early 50s, we found that pilots were, uh, they were crashing their planes, not because the pilot did something wrong and not because the plane uh, failed, but because mainly the pilot was overloaded. We tried to have them do too many things. And there's a, a probably a 50-year history trying to understand the multitasking brain uh, and trying to make aviation safer by creating the sterile cockpit so that the, drive, the pilot doesn't get distracted by all kinds of non-flying-related activities. And so the work that when I started looking at this, this issue of, of what happens when we're driving a vehicle, well, the cars are starting to become more and more complex, and we're bringing phones and smartphones into the car. And so all the lessons that we learned uh, with aviation psychology that made uh, planes and flying safer uh, apply to uh, the modern world with the, the smartphone we carry with us. Yeah, and so then uh, what, did you, what did you learn about aviation that was so helpful? The, what, what is it that about distraction or having so many things how easy is it for us to multitask? Maybe that's one way to get into this. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, it turns out we humans don't multitask very well, and uh, we've done a lot of research, and others have as well, trying to understand uh, how our brains try and do two, two things at the same time. And for the most part, the vast majority of us don't do that well. Um, we've studied thousands of people across the world and we find about 2% that uh, are, are better at multitasking than most of us. Uh, we call those folks supertaskers. Um, but the vast majority of us, the 98% of us, are not very good. When we try and do two things at once, something starts to uh, get lost in the translation. And especially when you mix uh, driving with texting or driving with doing any kind of uh, multitasking activity in the car, um, you're going to make driving less safe. You're not going to see where you're going. You're not going to see pedestrians or other vehicles, and uh, so you just get that uh, impairment that rises uh, to or above the impairment you'd see if you were driving drunk. It's a big impairment, and our brains just simply can't multitask the way we think that they do. They just don't. So what happens when I'm driving down the road? There's a few scenarios we could run through. Generally speaking, what happens when I'm driving down the road and I want to change the channel on my radio and I look down and flip around with the knobs? Well, we know that if you take your eyes off the road for more than two seconds, uh, you start to see an increase in the crash risk because you're not looking where you're going. Uh, 
and the average text takes about four and a half seconds to read. So in the case of Reggie, he was taking out his eyes out the road for prolonged periods of time, and the vehicle that was driving behind Reggie could see that they didn't, could see what, couldn't see what was going on inside the car at the time, but what they noticed was that Reggie start, kept veering out of his lane, veering out of his lane, veering out of his lane. What turned out was doing was Reggie was looking at and sending text messages, and so every time he was looking at and reading a text and then trying to send something back, he wasn't looking where he was going, and he just drifted out of the lane. And that really was exactly the, the cause of this uh, crash that resulted in uh, two people losing their life, was just looking at a phone to try and read a simple text. When we read the book, what we discover is that Reggie was really proficient in texting. I mean, far better than me. He, uh-huh. he can do this with his eyes closed almost really fast. Um, it's one thing that the investigators discovered when they were talking to him, isn't it? Right. So if I can send a text in 10 seconds, he could send it in four or five. But four or five is... is Well, at highway speeds, think about the distance you're traveling where your eyes are closed. Um, And here's a way to think about it. You might be lulled into thinking you could text and drive, but uh, imagine a different scenario. I just said, close your eyes and drive for that same period of time. You'd start to feel really uncomfortable. It's just that when you're reading that text, you just don't realize the danger you're putting yourself and other uh, and, and the risk you're putting other people uh, uh, at when they're when you're engaged in that activity. But no one would close your eyes for five or ten seconds uh, um, if they're driving down the road. But they might do the same functional thing if they're trying to text, and that. If you're not looking where you're going, it's pretty obvious you can't get to your destination safely. So can I text something and pay attention to what I'm texting and also pay attention to the road? Is it possible to be doing both at the same time? No, we've done a, like I said, uh, our lab has all kinds of sophisticated equipment, so we can simultaneously uh, record uh, what happens when you're um, when you're uh, paying attention to the road and when you're when you're uh, switching to like reading a text or talking on the phone and you get, uh, you know, you just get this pattern of I'm attending to the world and I'm not, it's, it's kind of an on off function in terms of what you're, what you're processing. And so you become more or less just like a, a robot, almost like a zombie driver. When you're, when you're interacting with his technology, you're either not looking at all where you're going or your eyes may be at the road, but you're just, you're, you're just not processing anything uh, with any degree of fidelity. And so, Anything that's unexpected is going to be uh, something you're not going to be able to react to. So when you say it's like being blindfolded with your eyes closed, that's not a comparison. That's literally the way it is in your mind. So just because you, your eyes look at something doesn't mean you see it. To see it means you need to actually pay attention to the world you're looking at. Um, and so it, if you're on a phone, uh, you, it creates something called inattentional blindness where you Something's right in front of you, but you don't see it. It creates a look-but-don't-see look type of uh, impairment, and that, of course, creates crashes. And uh, t- Just talking on a phone makes you miss about half of the things you normally would have noticed. If you're, if you're looking at a – if you take your eyes off the road to look at a screen or look at your phone or read a text or anything like that, then you're just simply not looking where you're going. And, and as I mentioned before, 
uh, more than two seconds of eyes off the road will significantly increase the risk of a crash. And the longer your eyes are off the road, the greater the impairment. We know that things like you mentioned, changing the radio, that's an activity that takes less than two seconds. And that's one of the reasons why uh, those activities, they're not free of risk, but those risks are substantially lower than texting. So I can change the radio fast, but the text takes longer, and that's the difference. That's um, right. I mean, uh, if it's less than two seconds, the, there really isn't a huge elevation in the crash risk. But when you take your eyes off the road to look at a text, just reading a text, and there you're reading a text that's not how fast you type, it's how fast you can read even a really simple text. Uh, the average is uh, over four and a half seconds, so well into that area where you're not going to be able to maintain control of your vehicle. And that's, that's exactly the, the uh, observations that happened in terms of Reggie's case. He was sending texts back and forth, and he was just not staying in his lane. And he had no idea. He thought that he was in complete control, that he was aware of everything. But the driver behind him, who uh, spoke to the investigators later, Terrell, said right. he was all over. In fact, he he said he thought to himself, oh, this isn't going to end good because there were a number of times that he went across the yellow line. Like he's driving drunk. Right. But he's instead of being intoxicated by alcohol, he's intoxicated by that cell phone he's holding. So you, you've mentioned this about the DUI, and we've, we've got a law in Utah now that treats... Um, a homicide or somebody that dies through an accident, the same if they're texting or something else is distracting them, the same as it would be with the DUI. Do we do we know that that's comparable then? Or how do we know yeah, that Yeah, we do. Comparable? In fact, actually, I know Terrell, Terrell can answer this as well, but in terms of the crash risk, uh, you're more than twice the level of impairment when you're texting as you would have been at a 0.08 blood alcohol level. So twice the crash risk of a drunk driver. So if I'm texting, it's the equivalent of a 0.16, and the legal limit is 0.08. Right. That's the level of impairment. You're really driving in a way that's just just patently unsafe. You're you're beyond buzz driving. You're drunk. Right. Is is part of that, I don't mean to drill down too much into this, especially since I don't really understand i guess all that much about the science but but you you mentioned the time related to changing the radio station but but it isn't just about time right there's there's got to be you have to formulate sentences as you're texting and you have to read it 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 takes more of your mind away than just than just the physical act of turning the knob to to change the channel it's not just looking away it's also cognitively being distracted Correct. So we think about what happens in terms of the driver being distracted is they take their eyes off the road for one reason. They take their hands off the wheel. And so you can imagine uh, reaching down to pick up a phone and trying to send a text. But it also takes attention away. It takes your mind away from the drive. And that's that cognitive source of distraction. And so you get that kind of trifecta of visual, manual, and cognitive impairment. And the longer you're impaired, the greater the crash risk. And so what we see is that uh, typical text is well above the what's considered to be safe, and that's one of the reasons why you get these really extremely high levels of impairment. Um, and it's quite obvious um, what the, the characteristics that uh, 
that we see in terms of Reggie swerving back and forth are very consistent with anybody who's trying to do some kind of visual manual cognitive task while driving their vehicle. They just don't maintain control of their vehicle. They'll drift out of their lane, and then if there happens to be something uh, on that other lane, uh, there's going to be a crash. Let's let's um, can we compare texting and driving with talking on the phone and driving? And and if we do that. Um, talking to a passenger while you're driving. Can you weave those together? Sure. So um, texting is worse. Um, texting has a crash risk that's twice that of a drunk driver. Uh, the odds of crashing when you're uh, talking on a cell phone are four times higher. For your, so you're four times more likely to crash uh, if you're talking on a phone than if that same driver were driving in without that level of distraction. That is the same level as someone who's driving at a 0.08 blood alcohol level. So talking on the phone is the same as uh, that uh, 0.08 uh, legal limit for alcohol impairment. So if I, is much worse. if I'm talking on the phone while I'm driving down the street, it is exactly the same as if I'm driving 0.08, the risk of causing an accident. That's what you're saying. That's correct. The crash risk is exactly the same. Now, uh, as you alluded to, though, uh, there's another type of conversation that a driver can have where they're talking to somebody in the vehicle. And it turns out that uh, the, the driver, when they're talking, they're impaired. But it turns out that if there's another adult in the car, they can actually notice the things that driver missed. And so we see kind of this compensation. Another set of eyes kind of helps reduce the crash risk so that we do not see an elevated crash risk for conversations between two adults as they're driving down the road if they're both in the car. But we do see an elevated crash risk if that driver were talking to that uh, other person on a cell phone. And it, it was one exception in terms of that kind of compensatory behavior where the second set of eyes helps out. And that's with teen drivers. Teens don't know exactly how to drive yet, and they don't know when to kind of help the driver out uh, or maybe even what they should do to help the driver out. So we don't see that reduction in uh, uh, crash risk uh, um, uh, with teen drivers, but we do in terms of uh, passenger conversation in the vehicle. So they have very different profiles, and kind of if you think about it for a second, you get another adult in the car, and they have a vested interest in getting to their destination. They'll kind of be like a backseat driver and, and kind of uh, help the driver out, either consciously or unconsciously. Uh, but that's what the science says. Is passenger conversations really aren't that distracting, but cell phone conversations are, and texting is even much worse. So um, my wife, Kathy, will occasionally offer a suggestion as I'm driving. <laughs> and my answer is usually, it's, it's your life, too. It's one vehicle. <laughs> we both go in or out together. Right. But, um, but but I um, I think we all sense that difference when somebody's actually actively helping us. But can we take this one more step? Because I think this is such a fascinating um, topic. What if I am listening to a book on tape? How does that compare? It's much easier to listen to the radio or book on tape if it's unless the radio is blaring, but at kind of normal volume, it doesn't cause a lot of problems because you're passively listening to that information. So when we've done studies, you know, listening to radio really doesn't elevate the, the risk at all. 
uh, listening to a book on tape is a little bit more demanding because you're trying to follow the thread of the conversation. But both of those are well below what we see uh, with talking on a cell phone. So the, there are things you can do in the car that aren't super distracting. Talking on a cell phone is bad, and all the other kinds of things where you're using the phone to text or interact with social media uh, and the like um, are off the charts bad. The difference is is how much attention it takes. Right. And if you're pass- passively or actively involved, and so That's it. Um, you're, if you're just listening to the radio, it's, you're not really having to generate speech and trying to figure out how to get everything out. Talking is actually harder than you think. Um, try speaking a second language, um, for example, and you'll realize that it's not easy to do. Um, we take years to kind of master speech. Um, and what happens is it, when we've looked at it, we see uh, that there's kind of a, a conflict where the same parts of the brain that are trying to get you, navigate you through space as you're driving are also co-opted by speech. And so you get this kind of conflict for the same parts of the brain to try and do two things at the one time and that two, two, two things at the same time and that doesn't work well. I would acknowledge, though I don't want to, that perhaps I had a telephone conference this morning and I was trying to do something else, and I missed pieces of the conferences. I, I, I found myself, I could only do one or the other. I couldn't do both. So, well, Yeah, that's a, that's a classic example you just described of the brain really just switching between one task and the other. We don't multitask uh, our brains, even though they have all these neurons and are massively connected and interconnected. Our behavior is essentially this serial processor that I can do the talking or the driving or uh, whatever activity. But you try and multi- multitask and um, performance gets worse. Yeah. You can't do it, can you? Just can't, it just can't. I think we uh, humans seem to be masters of self-deception and yeah. rationalization. We, we have an unbelievable ability to be defensive, of ourselves to protect ourselves. I think it's a self-protection mechanism, but um, and and some of that plays into Reggie's story, doesn't it, Terrell? I one of the interesting things about the book was how long it took Reggie to get to the point where he could realize that maybe he was the one that caused this accident. Right. Why don't I think you? That was really hard for him to come to terms with that. Why don't you take us through that? that at the very beginning, um, when the accident happens and the investigators show up and his family and everybody that's talking to him, um, he says that he wasn't distracted at all. Right, right. And he, he didn't. Did, I'm, I'm trying to remember, did he acknowledge at the beginning that he was texting or did he deny that but say that he was... Yeah, he he said he wasn't texting. He didn't. We had nothing. Bart had just come home from a tour serving in the military. and Bart's the um, investigator. Bart Rendlesbacher, yeah. And um, he he said he didn't know what had happened. He thought the other car may, he may have hide. I think his original statement was maybe he hide the plane because there was a little bit of rain. And right. and he thought the, the other car, there was some blaming of the other driver. Maybe he was close to the yellow line. But Bart's over there. I mean, Bart's been a, by that time, Bart had been a trooper for quite a long time. And there wasn't enough moisture. It was an SUV. There's no way he was hydroplaning on something like that. 
but it took Bart months. I remember we talked periodically and he just, it took him months. And, and even then when we got the cell phone records, um, he, he didn't really quite admit up and up front that, yeah, that's what I was doing. And I'm not sure he even remembers because I think your brain just kind of shuts down when you're driving and when you're texting and, and I'm not sure he, he even quite remembered at that time. I, I think he wanted to block out the accident and, and not remember it and um, was really struggling emotionally with the accident. And so, um, Tell, yeah, I, I think... Tell, I got a question about that. So in all of the hours and hours and months and years that you've known Reggie now, um, do you think that he was just trying to be protective and lie or do you think that 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 was really what he was believing. I think he, I, I think he truly be, did not want to face that he had, he had actually caused this accident. I, I really believe that he didn't, he couldn't, he couldn't face that. That's a really hard thing when you've never really been in trouble with the law. You've never really made any major, you know, terrible decisions that affect that have lifelong consequences. I, I really, I just don't think he ever thought it was, he, he couldn't come to terms with that emotionally. That, that's such a hard thing. It's much easier to think I hydroplaned. Yeah, I hydroplaned. It wasn't my texting, it was hydroplaning. Well, and, and as, we, as we think through the transition of this story, um, the personal aspects of Reggie and his, what he's thinking and going through and the transformation, it, is so um, emotional, I think, for for those of us that read the book. But it also is interesting in the context of how we see ourselves. I mean, right. We, we think we can do more than we can do, and when we make a mistake, we tend to be a little self-defensive and think that it wasn't a mistake. And it's those kinds of things that lead us into these problems and and ignoring warning signs. I mean, what we're doing really in many respects is just deceiving ourselves. So many people think that they're better than average at multitasking. They think they're better than average drivers. In fact, something like 70 or 80% of people think that they're better than average. That, of course, is impossible. Uh, you can't have that many people who are better than average, uh, uh, usually. And... Um, uh, when we look at the kind of behavioral profile, uh, people who use their phone a lot tend to score high in sensation seeking and impulsivity and just uh, kind of lower levels of cognitive control. So uh, they just don't have the ability to resist that phone if it goes off. And so, um, you know, again, Reggie's just a normal kid. He's just like everybody else. And the, the concern here is don't think look at that guy there. It's basically what happened to him could happen to absolutely anybody else. You have to make a concerted effort to say, I'm not going to use the phone. I'm not going to text because it's, it's, it's really easy to get garden path into making the wrong decisions. And, uh, I don't think that Reggie consciously decided he was going to be a reckless driver and, and kill two people. That's really clearly he didn't intend that. But, um, at the end of the day, uh, the technology and his lack of kind of trying to say, I'm going to not engage in these behaviors, uh, led him to where, where he where, where to crash. Um, Terrell, can you walk us through the end of this story and then a little bit beyond with Reggie and the families uh, involved? 
the, the end of the story was basically that uh, that Reggie ended up pleading guilty. Now, I remember sitting down. Um, Jackie Forforo wanted certain things out of the case, and Leila wanted a few other things out of the case. And the three of us met together in our upstairs office and sat down and hammered out what they both wanted to see in a plea negotiation. You know, I think we realized that, and there was some negative publicity we received about, you you know, this guy should go to prison. Well, one, it didn't qualify for prison. And two, it, it really probably didn't warrant any significant jail time because because this was a, a very landmark case. Nobody had ever been charged with a negligent homicide for texting and driving. So the, we basically let the widows write the plea negotiations. We sat out there, then we went to Don and George and said, this is what they want. And and Don put it in a plea negotiation, and it ended up Reggie went well above and beyond the call of duty, and um, and he he pled guilty. I remember I was really angry when I got a call from Deanie Wimmer at KSL, who said I've been told that Reggie can do an interview with me, but but he can't talk about his case, and I was really mad. And I was just like, fine. And I remember he was on pretrial release, and I called Kayleen the the pretrial release officer and said, you know, can you just throw him in jail? I'm really frustrated. I'm really mad. And, and um, you know, he's not willing to do the interview and he wants to do an interview, but only talks about the dangers of it without talking about what he did. And, and finally, Kayleen and I sat down with him and I met him and, and uh, we kind of rearranged some things, but he ended up pleading guilty. And it was really an interesting thing because uh, and it ended up probably being for the better that he did not do the interview with Deanie. I think Deanie is a great interviewer, but that's when zero fatalities came. In. And um, I was kind of looking around for what else he could do, because by the time I got back with Deanie, the story, she had already run a story. And so zero fatalities reached out to me. And that was kind of really the first where we were trying to get the word out and, and Reggie did a video. We all did a video called echo 1085 and it's now shown, I believe pretty much across the country as a, in driver's ed classes. And, and it, we literally had a film crew videoing him going into jail and being booked into jail. So the video echo 1085, um, that's literally him being booked into jail. That is not, that's not like a redo. It was the day he went. The film crew was with us for several days. And and the case got a lot of attention. I'd like to hope that, that it helps people know that, that the dangers of texting and driving, but that not only that, but looking at the effect it has had on Jackie and her family, Leila and her family, and Reggie and his family. Um, and actually, the other person involved in the story, John Kaiserman, and uh, who who suffered greatly with, with the accident. Um, but today, um, if you look at today, Megan Odell, she was just weeks away from getting married when when this incident happened. She was the only child of Keith and Leila Odell. She has since married. She has a baby. She's doing well. Um, she and Reggie and Reggie's wife, Brittany, are friends. Um, Reggie and Brittany just welcomed the baby last week. Um, they, you know, he's married. He has a baby now. He's a father. Uh, Stephanie Forfaro, I feel old because this accident happened the week after Stephanie, two weeks after Stephanie turned seven and Cassidy was approaching turning four. So she was just three years old. Stephanie just graduated from high school and Cassidy will be going into her junior year in high school. Jackie's happy. She is in a relationship with a man that 
that has, she's been in this relationship for, gosh, at least a decade, it's doing really well. Leila's remarried and happy. And, um, and, and I think, I think it shows that, that these people, they've taken a tragedy and, and there was a lot of forgiveness. I know that Jack, uh, Reggie has stayed in contact with Jackie and her kids as well. Let's break and, this down just a teeny bit. That What was the sentence that um, Reggie got? The, the original sentence was that he was supposed to speak to some high schools and he was supposed to speak to the legislature. He was supposed to um, um, write an apology letter and watch some videos on their lives. Was he so supposed Jack, to go to, did he go to jail? And he got 30 days in jail. Okay. So he got 30 days in jail and then he got... Um, A fine one, and some community service. Uh-huh. So he was really supposed to only speak. When we talk about uh, public speaking, he was only supposed to speak to some some high schools in Cache Valley. That was it, and Box Elder County. That was the that was the original sentence. And so, and and, and, it, and part of the reason why the sentence was light, because what we've been talking about today is now this this is a second degree felony, which is right. one to fifteen years in prison. This is light because this was the very first case of its kind in the whole country. Right. And, right. and there was this idea that, well, people need to be on notice. So the first time it happens, we're going to be a little bit lighter, I guess. Is that the is that the idea? I think we weren't sure what to do with the sentence, because truly what we were looking at was because this was such a unique case and it was such a, a new concept, putting him in jail and giving him a fine really, really wasn't what the widows wanted. Jackie and Leila did not, I mean, they wanted that, but they didn't. They wanted more to it. And this was a time where George and Don and I both... George and Don and I, those were the two prosecutors. Right. So George Baines was our county attorney at the time. Don Linton was the prosecutor. And Tony Baird was involved as well, um, our chief deputy. But we wanted something a little more and a little different out of this. And so the plea negotiation was crafted that way so that the victims could have their say in in this whole process. It just didn't feel right to put him in jail. It wasn't going to do us any good. So this, put him in jail and a fine only. And so the amount of community service going out and talking to high school students or the legislature, in the end, how far did he exceed what he was required to do? So I believe the original sentence was 100 hours because between the schools and the legislature. He testified at the legislature, and then he did speak at schools. And in fact, my my daughter Jamie was maybe 14 at the time, and Taylor was 12. And Reggie and I are like, oh, we got to do a presentation. We don't even know what to do. So Jamie and Taylor at 12 and 14 put together the very first presentation we used at schools. But then he got connected with zero fatalities through this Echo 1085 video and then started doing a lot of presentations. Um, He has vastly exceeded the 100 hours he was originally required to do. Like twice, three times, four times? Oh, um, I I would say thousands of hours have been put in now. More than 10 times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Easy, yeah, he yeah. speaks to the NBA. He speaks to the NFL. I'm ticked. He doesn't take me with him. Um, he speaks <laughs> at different conferences. Um, he speaks at national conferences, um, and and actually has like a a um, 
I think it's zero fatalities that actually get a professional presentation for him. He speaks at schools. He speaks all over. If you, if, uh, you know, I, he's always gone. He is always speaking somewhere. Just and, constantly trying to help protect somebody yeah. from going through what he had to go through. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in what you've described about the relationship between Reggie and the widows of the two men that he killed. And part of what's interesting to me about that is that you've got years and years of experience in the criminal system. And, um, and it seems that the, the relationship that has developed between those three far exceeds what is normal. Oh, yes, yes. I remember when we went to go to Oprah and we were talking to the to one of the producers and they were going to arrange for us to be in different hotels. And I thought that was really odd. So Jackie, Jackie and I and Megan were in one hotel and Reggie and his mom were in a different hotel. And we all got together that night later. And, <laughs> and I thought that was weird that we were in different hotels. And then I remember being in the filming studio and we were in one area and Reggie and his mom were in a different area. And I remember Reggie coming to our green room and the security guy stopping Reggie. And, and then later we're like, oh, no, he can come into our room. And the producer said something about this is really odd. We, we thought we would have to have kept you all completely separate. No, we all hung out together in Chicago. And, and so it is a really unique case in that once, once Reggie said he was sorry and once he started really showing that he was really remorseful because in the in the beginning, when you think about it, that the, through the court case and and in that initial investigation that took, I mean, it was almost a year before we filed the criminal charges. It it there wasn't a lot of we didn't think there was a lot of remorse. It didn't feel like it was a lot of remorse, but it, it turns out he was very very quiet. He had been instructed not to say anything, and and i remember later talking to him about that you know there were ways you can say my thoughts and prayers are with you or something where you don't have to acknowledge guilt but he had been told by a legal counsel to not acknowledge anything to not say anything and i think it really hurt him um and i think it also hurt him emotionally i think it hurt him legally and i think it, it hurt him emotionally to to to, to go follow. that long to go that long yeah, without yeah it was like yeah it was the, like 2 years before they heard an apology what I get out of the book and from uh, talking with you about these families that are so um, forgiving and understanding and helpful is that the fact that they all came together um, sincerely, genuinely, apologetically, forgivingly um, helped all of them recover dramatically more mm-hmm. than ever would have happened. Some people go to the grave angry about these things. You know, we all learned, three of them have a better life because of. They the, do. You and I learned, Scott, through the through the Trisha Autry case, that when people hold, I mean, that was my first really big, devastating case where we learned from Joanne about forgiveness. You and I and Joanne had discussions about forgiveness. So we're and, talking. Terrell's talking about another case. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. We're, we're it's <laughs> unrelated case, but the point is, is that. What, what we learn through these things in every aspect of life, including criminal cases or slight offenses, that the quicker we forgive, the quicker we heal. Right. 
right. And I remember when Megan reached out and said, I would like to meet him. And I called him and said, would you like to meet her? Yes, I'd be happy to meet him, her. And, and they met and, and, um, and became, I mean, they're friends. And um, yeah. I, I think that that is such an example because we have such a lack of, of tolerance and it seems like forgiveness in criminal cases. And, and I think that forgiveness is a very personal thing. But I have seen these people be able to move on and be happy in light of a, a tragedy. They've been able to move on. They're doing well. And and I, Megan, she named her baby Keith after her father um, that she had just a few months ago. And it's okay. They're doing fun. They're doing. And, they, and of course, they miss their loved one. There's but, two. There's two really big messages in this book, and the one is is how distractions are. Two great messages for today. And one is, Dr. Strayer, how, how distractions can dramatically change uh, our attention and our lives and have all these implications. And then, Terrell, on the other side, this message of how divided we are as a society and struggle um, in these tribal kind of things. I'm a victim and you're a perpetrator, or I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican, or I'm a this and you're that and right. and um, that's a that's a wonderful message from this book too about um, how we need to come together but despite right. our differences there's there's nobody that was happy with what Reggie did but they found a way to to forgive and build a life of friendship with him which caused them all to have a better life it there's um, Reminds me of the old proverb, before you go seeking revenge, dig two graves, because hate and uh, the lack of forgiveness probably hurts right. um, both. Maybe the person who refuses to forgive even more. Um, Dr. Strayer, I, I th we're getting right towards the end here, but I, I think there's um, a lesson for us in all aspects of our lives that go beyond texting and driving. And that is, um, if we're on our phones glancing at uh, Facebook or texting while we're in a classroom, or if, if we're in somebody's living room and um, talking with family or friends and, and half the group is texting something out, um, that, that seems to be drawing our attention away from what we're supposed to be doing, building relationships with friends or paying attention in class or whatever it might be, that this, um, this distraction is like going drunk with friends, <laughs> not just in a car. I think that uh, it's, it's hard uh, to fail. Uh, you need to really appreciate, I should say, the, the potential for that phone to kind of interfere with uh, a good quality life. Um, so what happens is it interferes with personal communication. It interferes with the, uh, being able to drive, to do well in your classes, um, just even to have kind of intimacy with your family and friends. Um, there's more and more concern that, uh, especially the social media features where the phone rings and you have to answer right away, um, may trigger addiction in some of us, behavioral addiction where you can't not look at the phone and that you see that it becomes uh, and there's even apps that uh, anyone can uh, download that will actually tell you how often you use your phone but 
just as a statistic, just to kind of put things in perspective, the average American spends 10 hours in front of a screen every day. That is staggering. I can't think of very many other things we do for that period of time. And so we've got a technology that's potentially addictive, and it interferes with all aspects of life. And in the case of driving, uh, there are, you know, consequences in terms of crashes, but there are also consequences in terms of how your, your quality of your life, uh, how well you do in school, and everything else. It's a very, very powerful medium uh, that you should be very careful about in terms of regulating your own behavior. This book is a couple years old, and one of the questions posed in it is, can, can behaviors be addictive or just substances? Do we know more about that today? Yeah, I mean, there's no quite, we even at the time, we knew there were things like behavioral addiction for gambling, and now you see that uh, it's more and more evidence that uh, we can become addicted to our phones. There are, uh, the American Psychological Association has categories for gaming addiction and other kinds of digital addictions that are associated with computers, games, and, and your phone. Um, so it's what we know, and, and it's kind of carried out in the book, is that the, the phone, when your phone rings, it triggers the little reward circuits in your brain, giving you a little burst of dopamine. And uh, that's the same drug that, uh, you know, is working with uh, cocaine. It's a very, very powerful reward system. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely the case that we can become far too connected to that phone at, and at the risk of basically losing out on all kinds of dimensions of life. So if, we, if we're addicted or behave like an addiction... Um, perhaps when we're driving, we should not have the phone within sight, but rather in the back seat. Um, perhaps when we're um, with friends playing games or talking, we should get it out of sight so that we can't have that constant tug to look at it. Yeah, it pulls I, us away. We have, you know, we've been talking about how Reggie Shaw was could have been anybody's son or brother we're we're in higher education you and i and um so we have that uh, sort of paternal relationship with all of the students that that come here we feel a great sense of responsibility for their care and safety and uh, and reggie could be any one of our students certainly as well and any one of us that's talking here but i i i wonder dr strayer if the message isn't in short put down your phone a little <laughs> arrange yeah. to put your phone down i think that it's actually easy to have it slip into every aspect of your behavior the very very first thing you do when you wake up in the morning the very very last thing you do before you go to sleep and almost every activity in between is kind of bombarded by the phone you need to kind of basically in your own life take kind of responsibility for i'm going to be a not distracted i'm going to let the phone kind of be in its uh, uh in a kind of an off position uh, maybe you need to, um, uh, maybe you need to, uh, uh, you know, put it in your glove box. Maybe you need to leave it uh, in your briefcase or backpack, um, because uh, you know, in, in, in terms of the educational component, it's clear that the person is bringing out their laptop or their phone and, and paying attention to that during lectures does poorly. And in many cases, they create a cloud of distraction so that not only are they distracted and have poor grades, but everyone is sitting around them also uh, does. Uh, less well in their coursework because, you know, if someone pulls up, you know, dancing cats, cats or something like that in a YouTube video, well, that's <laughs> maybe more compelling than whatever else is going on in class, and then they're going to miss really critical details. So 
it's very easy to kind of fall into this camp and you need to be really kind of set your own internal policies about I'm not going to do it in these circumstances. I'm not going to do it on a date or when I go out to dinner or something like that. We have a, a, a student book club that I, that's my my book club for students. And we read a few books every semester. It's just a voluntary thing. And we read this book as a group. And the students that read the book, and then we discussed it, reported back to me later that they changed their behaviors because of the book, that they they did things to get rid of their phone. Um, they just changed it. And and I, I was so happy with that because it, it didn't just make them safer, it made them happier. And I... And I I think we tend to focus on millennials uh, unfairly a bit. When, when Mike Cabinet and I um, here at the university were talking about this one day, um, it became apparent to us that, that it wasn't millennials, it was all of us. Because mm-hmm. we, we'll show mm-hmm. up to a cabinet meeting or some other meeting, and everybody pulls out their phones while they're waiting for the meeting to start. And and then if the topic is a little bit less interesting, somebody will just kind of glance at it to quickly answer an email. And, and, and the consequence of that is, is that we don't get to know each other. We don't have those conversations. We're not paying attention to the subject. That, that if things start to drag and half, half of the group just uh, kind of zones out by doing quick emails, then, then uh, we're not holding each other accountable and we're becoming less productive as a group and... Uh, and it becomes a meeting of one or two, depending on who's <laughs> right. who's on yeah. and who's off. <laughs> well, one of the things I will say just kind of is is that absolutely everything you said is true. And I think especially to kind of link it back to Reggie, he's not some uh, unusual person. The kinds of problems he ended up getting into with texting and driving, they're basically everybody's problems. He ended up in a really tragic accident as a consequence of it, but, um, you know, there's, if you are, it is, it, you know, he's the typical, uh, you know, you know, high school, college age student who can easily be in that same situation. So I, I really caution people to say, don't look and say, look at that, look what happened to him. Think that could have easily been me. Cause that's, that's, I think really the message that Reggie says is, um, this could be just pretty much anybody. You don't realize how distracting and, and how much this technology is and to what extent it actually kind of well, in his case in particular, really, you know, we have a devastating consequence for probably the rest of his life. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University. We've been delighted to have as guests in studio joining us by phone today, Terrell Warner and Dr. David Strayer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.